Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn from Wiltshire and I'm looking out of the window at the wonderful autumnal colours. Hello, it's Richard Heller in South East London and I'm looking out at a very grey and windy South East London with not much autumnal colour. We had uh, a whirlwind a couple of weeks ago here in Wiltshire. Remind me very much of Shahina Freedy. Well, it, brought down uh, some branches and a tree across the power line. Well, um, it's a great pleasure to be welcoming back um, Ralph Nicholson today. Ralph is leading historian of um, women's cricket in England. Uh, she wrote a wonderful book called Ladies and Lords, A History of Women's Cricket in Britain. Um, when we spoke to Ralph before, she had so much to tell us. Uh, and there were so many fascinating stories of women's cricket that when they got up to 1955. So it's a great joy to pick up the story once again and take it through to the present day. Ralph, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be back for a second innings. Gosh, uh, your book is wonderful. And just a re- sort of reprise, really, where we got to last time, we, we discussed an image of women playing cricket in 1344 that repeat... Uh, 1344, that's just when Edward the Third was king. He was just ahead of the Battle of, of Crecy. Uh, and that's in the, uh, in the Bodleian Library. We discussed the Duke of Dorset's encouragement uh, of women's cricket. We, uh, we discovered that Stanley Baldwin had fallen in love with his wife, Lucy, watching her score of 50 in a, in a country house game. We discussed, discussed, I mean, we had a wonderful conversation about Marjorie Pollard, founder of Women's Cricket magazine. Uh, And it was a glorious conversation. But as Richard has just said, we didn't make that much progress chronologically because there was so much to discuss. Hmm. We're looking at the 1950s now. And women's game is still very much an amateur game. Uh, It's all amateur. And it's still very dominated by, should we say, upper class and upper middle class women isn't it still women who could afford to play as amateurs and go to and on the whole it's uh, played by women who've been to independent schools isn't it yeah that's absolutely right um one of the problems kind of post-war was that women's cricket wasn't introduced into the new secondary modern schools so it remained really um the remit of um, kind of girls who'd come up and were and were privately educated. Um, so there's a kind of audience there that um, might have been a captive audience, but unfortunately weren't really able to play at school. Um, so yeah, it very much remains a, um, a kind of middle class undertaking and, and they sort of renew very much this amateur ethos and this attachment to um, almost um, kind of trying to have a close relationship with the MCC, I guess. Um, there's a real sense, or I think that we'd sort of talked about in the, the 1920s and 1930s, when the Women's Cricket Association first formed in the 1920s and and 1930s, they were very much trying to establish a a close relationship with the MCC. They didn't want their activities to be seen as controversial. Um, And so they they very much adopted this amateur ethos, um, this idea that kind of playing cricket for for trophies um, or for for kind of competition's sake was wrong um, and that it was all about playing for love of the game. And that's very much revived, really, in the post-war period. 
Was that a factor, do you think, in the, the attitude of the women's cricket to South Africa, where it took very much the same line in 1968 as the MCC establishment? They wanted to play a tour in um, Abattoir of uh, basically all-white South Africa, didn't they? They did. I think that's an interesting one. Um, I think that it does partly stem from um, a kind of... Um, a similar sort of imperial attitude and an imperial kind of relationship and, and feeling that they really wanted um, women's cricket in South Africa to carry on despite the apartheid regime. Um, but to some extent, the situation that arises for the WCA in, um, in 1968 is um, kind of caused independently of what's happening in men's cricket. Um, and they don't really think about the, the consequences. Um, so by the 1960s, the Women's Cricket Association were in receipt of funding from the government, um, which is a slightly different situation to the situation for, for the men's game and for the MCC. So this was the real problem with um, when they're planning their 1968-9 tour to Australia and New Zealand, they think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a, a kind of 10-day stopover en route in South Africa. Um, so at the 1968-9 tour was the first tour where they where they flew to Australia and New Zealand and they decided that they would book a kind of a flight stopover in South Africa on the way. Um, so they went ahead and made the arrangements for this and they hadn't really thought about the fact that there were going to be consequences um, because by this point the government could not be seen um, to be encouraging that kind of sporting relationship with South Africa and to effectively be funding it. They were giving them a travel grant of, of £2,000 which was a lot of money in 1968 in order to be able to go so um there there was a kind of public decision taken um in uh, sort of it was around about september 1968 um whereby the wca had suddenly had to do an about turn and say oh no actually we're not going to go to south africa we've had to cancel that um and the government made out that it was a sort of free decision but actually behind the scenes um, Dennis Howell, the, the Labour sports minister, um, had privately threatened to totally withdraw this travel grant of £2,000 if they persisted with this idea of stopping over in South Africa. Um, so, you know, that would have meant that the tour couldn't go ahead at all. Um, so the WCA were very cross about this. And um, the chair, Audrey Collins, said that, um, you know, one's always disappointed when matters beyond one's control affect amateur sport. It's the only way to promote friendliness. And it seems such a pity that is not to happen. Um, and Rachel Hayhoe Flint, um, who was the captain on the 1968-9 tour, was was very cross about it as well. Um, and she wrote in her, she later wrote in her autobiography, "Who are we to tell the South Africans how to run their country?" So they very much had this um, kind of they very much adopted this MCC idea that sport and politics were separate and that um, the, the apartheid shouldn't be anything to do with cricket. And also this kind of idea that what they were really trying to do was continue women's cricket in South Africa and continue to support it by going and, and playing matches there. Um, but because the government were funding them and um, the government were able to put pressure on and say, no, you have to um, you have to not go basically so so it was cancelled and then um they couldn't play south africa again after that um, one of the key contexts here of course is is this is immediately after or during even the dolabira affair where uh you know the mcc a quick men's team had been about to go they hadn't chosen basil dolabira uh, and then there'd been an uproar cartwright had pulled out and they changed their mind so for women's cricket to have, and then the tour was cancelled. So for women's cricket to take that view at that time was quite 
quite eye-catching and uh, unbelievably insensitive. And it does raise, uh, you know, um, I mean, Rachel Hayhoe Flint was such a superlative, great pioneer in so many ways and such a great character. But I was a bit shocked, actually, when she was given her gate at Lord's, you know, because her statements about apartheid and it's up to South who are we to tell South Africa how to run its own affairs really stand out today as being pretty terrible actually and I'm um, interested that the MCC which has a terrible record on apartheid and race issues as you know should have should have made that special decision last summer to give Rachel Hayhoe Flint her gate her named gate at Lord's. Well, I think that it speaks to a broader issue, which is that um, we celebrate pioneering female cricketers for their achievements, for kind of advancing the cause for women, whilst ignoring their quite questionable record on race issues. And I think that often um, people think of somebody like Rachel Hayhoe Flint, who did an enormous amount to advance women's cricket, and they aren't aware of some of her, um, what we would now look back and, and see as quite problematic views about South Africa. Might they have had Gates instead? Or might they have had some sort of commemoration of Enid Bakewell as an alternative? She was a rather different sort of um, women's cricketer, really to all of those of her generation, wasn't she? She had a rather yes. different outlook. Hmm. Yes, she was quite unique at this time. I talked about women's cricket as being quite middle class generally um she was actually from a more of a working class background um, her father was a miner and she grew up in a, um, a little mining village in in nottinghamshire um and um she kind of almost stumbled across women's cricket by accident um she was quite um academically bright she went to a grammar school and one of her teachers there kind of said oh um you should come along and play for this club and from there it went on and, and she went and trained as a PE teacher teacher training college and then um was able to kind of go into the England women's cricket team from there but she was quite rare in, in having that background I mean it's uh not the, the daughter of a a not a Nottinghamshire minor. That's that puts her firmly in the working class. But she was also a socialist, wasn't she? Yeah. So she was born in in 1940, um, and yes, yeah, she was actually really interesting. So I did a lot of interviews for the book, um, and I went and spoke to a lot of female cricketers, and a lot of them were quite reluctant to talk about their political views. Um, but if anyone has come across Enid Bakewell, you'll know that, um, for instance, at, at cricketing events nowadays, she tends to parade around wearing an enormous red Labour rosette, which is quite fun. Um, and so she isn't um, she isn't backward in coming forward about her political views. Um, and indeed, in our interview, she talked about um, having been kind of inspired by her dad, who I think um, ended up being a Labour councillor. Um, she was kind of inspired by him to um, be very politically engaged. Um, and um, so she um, has, uh, I think she's served as a councillor for the Labour Party. Um, and in our interview, she did talk about being a socialist and also a feminist, which is, again, is quite a rare thing for a female cricketer to talk about. Because you say in your new book, you um, trace the sort of relationship between women's cricket and women's sport generally and the women's liberation movement that was um, started really to get underway in the 1970s. And I think your 
overall conclusion is that there wasn't much of a relationship between them. The women's lib movement doesn't seem to have been terribly interested in women's sport generally. And um, sport didn't figure in the Sex Discrimination Act, did it, of 1975? Or at least not for sports where the average woman was deemed not to be as strong as the average man, which included cricket, didn't it? Exactly. And that piece of legislation, therefore, has meant that it's been legal for um, professional sports like cricket to pay women less than men. Um, so, yeah, the, the 1970s is meant to have kind of brought, brought about this revolution in attitudes towards women. And we're meant to have had equal pay in theory since 1970. Um, but in professional sport, that's been specifically excluded and, and remains excluded. And there remains an, a huge pay gap between what um, the, the captain of the England women's cricket team and the captain of the England men's cricket team are earning. Um, so and that is um, partly a consequence of the fact that the women in the women's liberation movement weren't particularly interested in sport, as you say, they were much more focused on employment and on kind of domestic labour and childcare and, and issues like that. And sport doesn't really figure into um, their kind of campaigns and their considerations. And that means in turn that um, women who are playing cricket and the women of the Women's Cricket Association aren't particularly interested in second wave feminism because they just don't see it as something that is relevant to their lives and and that means that there is this kind of political disconnect between female cricketers and feminism they don't see themselves as feminist they kind of very much see cricket as something that they do um, for fun and, and they don't want to see it in a political way um, it's my view that often what they're doing is feminist in the sense of, um, you know, they are persisting in playing cricket, despite the fact that that's sometimes kind of viewed controversially and that they're getting criticised for it and the media aren't taking them seriously. But um, aside from Enid Bakewell, um, who's kind of how we started out on this discussion, she's quite rare in actually saying, yes, I am a feminist. Normally, um, there's this kind of level of discomfort, actually, about um, being seen to be doing something that's that's feminist. Women's cricket isn't helped, is it, at this period, by the Sports Council. Um, sports Council just assumes, doesn't it, that women don't like team sports at all, and it promotes um, things like keep fit and swimming, you know, for women, on the assumption they, you know, that that's all they're interested in, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So by the 1980s, the Sports Council are seeing women as, as a target group, and they're um, trying to promote female participation in sport but what tends to happen is that they kind of funnel women into um you know what they see as more kind of feminine appropriate activities like going to keep fit classes or gymnastics um or netball and and those kind of um activities that we might see as being um, more kind of traditionally dominated by women um and so what we see in the 1980s with participation figures in cricket um, is that they're actually going down and that less women are participating in cricket at the end of the 80s than were at the beginning of the 80s. Um, while there is a growth in um, female physical activity in some other areas, um, it mainly comes from more indoor sports. Um, and so that's that's quite interesting. Um, and that is, um, you know, that does partly fall at the at the feet of the sports council who aren't necessarily doing enough to overcome um, or to encourage um, women to participate in um, sports like cricket that maybe we don't traditionally associate with women. And the Women's Cricket Association perhaps doesn't help by setting its face against 
alternative sources of funding, doesn't it? it? It's still opposed to commercialism, it's still opposed to sponsorship, and, you know, it's, it's still no question of paying women players at all. They're still meeting their own expenses, aren't they? They're not even allowed to accept personal sponsorship. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And actually, interestingly, Rachel Hayhoe-Flint has a, a bit of an ongoing battle with the Women's Cricket Association about this. Um so one of the things that she does that's really um, that we would think of is actually quite um, kind of helpful for women's cricket because they're always short of money is organise these fundraising matches against men's club teams, whereby she would take an England women's 11 around the country um, to play in these club matches in return for a guaranteed sum of money from that club. Um, so and and you know she's raising kind of hundreds thousands of pounds um, throughout the 1970s and 1980s by doing this. But what she's doing is funneling the money into a separate bank account that kind of belongs to her. Um, and um, the rest of the WCA executive are a little bit uneasy about this. Um, and um, one of the things that she's doing is um, she's giving payments to players. So, for example, when the England women go to the World Cup in New Zealand, um, she arranges to give £150 to each of the England women players um, to, to help cover their travel costs. And um, the rest of the WCA executive aren't very keen on this because they see it as almost the first step um, towards um, a kind of um, expectation of player payments um, and a kind of step away from the amateur ethos that's always been really important to women's cricket and to the WCA. Wasn't um, wasn't Rachel Hayo Flint actually removed from England a captaincy at one stage? Yes, she was. Um, there was a big row in 1977. She was kind of summoned to a meeting of the England selectors and told that she was having the captaincy removed. And then um, a little bit after that, she was told that she wasn't going to be selected um, to participate in that winter's World Cup in India. Um, and it was very controversial. It doesn't seem to have been a decision made on cricketing grounds. She'd been England captain at that point by 10 years. She'd never lost a test match while in charge. And she was clearly still one of the best cricketers in the country. So it's all very bizarre. And um, I, I did ask a lot of people about this in interviews and people are quite reluctant to talk about it. There's still this kind of big secrecy surrounding exactly why this happened. Um, I do speculate a little bit in the book that perhaps she'd rubbed up some of the others in the in the WCA a little bit the wrong way. She was a very well-known, very famous figure, um, and uh, there was some perhaps some discomfort that she was almost seen to be bigger than women's cricket because she was such a personality, and there was a lot of other people kind of working very hard behind the scenes who were perhaps a little bit disgruntled about this. Um, so that possibly played a role. I think that there's a, a bit of a debate going on about the extent to which she can have been considered an amateur as well. Uh, and at this time, you you weren't permitted to play for England women um, if you were kind of if you were seen to not be an amateur. Um, and there's there's a, so there's a bit of a conversation going on about that because she's obviously earning quite a lot of money from things like um, endorsements and 
and she possibly is kind of slightly crossing this line about um, kind of taking payments for for things, perhaps. Um, but again, it's it's a, it's speculative, um, and there's there's never been a kind of definitive reason for why she had the captaincy removed and why she wasn't selected for the World Cup. But she does then come back and play for England again after that winter. Um, so it's all a little bit of a mystery, but certainly she was kind of rubbing a few people up the wrong way, I think. And uh, so it's very interesting, this thing about uh, Rachel Hayhoe Flint, because Colin Cowdery, who was sort of around just a little bit ahead of her, still playing, uh, you know, test match cricket in the 70s, was an amateur. Uh, and he had the same irregular payment system going. He he he, he was a gentleman. It enabled him to be present himself to the outside world as a gentleman, whereas, well, taking all sorts of payments. And that was never an issue with, with Cowdery, but somehow it seems to have, from what you're saying, been an issue with Rachel Hayhoe Flint, which seems a bit... Um, a bit, a bit invidious. Just look, probing a little bit deeper. Do you think she was the Women's Cricket Association? From your account, was a sort of tame organisation, you know, representing not really women's interests but male interests. The patriarchal system, which then ran ran cricket, was effectively uh, Rachel Hayhoe Flint uh, a war against the WCA, uh, a war against. Um, the male patriarchy which definitely existed at that time i don't know if i would present it in those terms um i think that i think she was fantastic for women's cricket because she was this big personality um but i think that there was a sense um perhaps amongst some of her some of her fellow um kind of wca members that at times it, it seemed that she was promoting herself rather than women's cricket um, and that's probably a bit controversial to say so I know that um, you know she's she's very well known and, and certainly was a very popular figure but there's for example there's um, an incident in 1976 when the WCA are in these quite difficult quite secret negotiations with the MCC to try and get access to Lords they've never been able to play a match there and they've been asking for 50 years to try and get a match there and finally um, after the success of the first Women's World Cup in 1973, the MCC are thinking, oh, hang on, we, we, we think we probably should give the Women's Cricket Association a match at Lords, um, but we've just got to kind of negotiate the details. And then suddenly the newspapers are filled with a story, which is Rachel Hayhoe Flint saying that she's going to sue the MCC because they're not letting the women have a match at Lords and it's against the Sex Discrimination Act. So she's going to, she says she's going to haul them before the Equal Opportunities Commission um, and um, she's going to take legal action against them. And this nearly totally derails these very difficult negotiations with the MCC because the MCC are obviously really cross about this and are kind of saying, well, we are thinking about having a women's match and, and now one of your people um, is saying that we aren't letting you play here. So that, that was a kind of source of tension because it was felt that um, really it wasn't an, a particularly appropriate time to kind of go to the media and threaten that when what, what, the, what the WCA were trying to do was get, get the match, but they knew that they had to kind of be a little bit, take a little bit more of a softer approach at that point. Very interesting. I mean, looking back at there, you know, you would say that Rachel Hayhoe Flint was the one who was in the right side of history. And, you know, the, this sort of behind the scenes fix wasn't really the way to do it. Good for her. Yes. On the other hand, um, they did get the match at Lords um, for the first time in 1976. So it's 
it, it's an interesting one because the MTC were clearly quite resistant to this and it, it clearly took a lot of persuasive techniques behind the scenes. So it depends on how you view it, really. Tell, tell us a little bit, actually, about I'd like to know a bit more about Rachel Hayhoe Flint. You know, what was her background? Um, there's always a slight feeling of, uh, you know, jolly hockey sticks about her, wasn't there? Yeah, well, she was the daughter of two PE teachers, actually. Oh, that makes um, sense. So she, yeah. yeah, so she'd grown up very much with that, with that kind of ethos at home, I suppose. Um, and um, and then it was a Joyce of... Grenfell figure, wasn't <laughs> there? In oh. Trinians, you know. Well, that's a bit unfair, but she was a very good hockey player, wasn't she? As well, she wrote a book about. I think she wrote a book about hockey, a manual about hockey. I not unfair. I love Joyce, Joyce really? Grenfell in St. Trinians. Well, well, it's a slightly yes, <laughs> but she's not a comic figure. I mean, she's a very. She's, no, no, I no, think. No. I think yes. Yeah. She was a very good hockey player as well, yes. Um, and actually, she for a time, she went and, and coached hockey in the US. She spent a couple of years over there, and that was where she um, picked up a little bit of sports journalism initially. Um, and then she came back to England um, and you know ended up writing a lot for um, particularly the Daily Telegraph for years. She wrote women's cricket reports for them um, and uh, kind of did a lot to get women's cricket in the English press. Um, whereas before it had kind of struggled a little bit more. So there's great stories about her on the 1968-9 tour of Australia and New Zealand when she'd be kind of captaining and all day in the field and then running off at the end of the day to to go and, and file a report back home. Um, so she was getting the, the tour coverage in a way that it wouldn't have, have otherwise have had. Um, so, she, yeah, she was a really kind of interesting figure and probably um, we'd call her kind of the first women's cricket celebrity um, because um, she was very, a kind of very outgoing, very vivacious person. And then she ended up um, by the, the beginning of the 70s, she was kind of appearing on um, a question of sport and, you know, those kind of programmes and doing a bit of TV presenting. And, and she was making a lot of TV appearances. Um, so she was she ended up being kind of very, very well known at that time for a female cricketer. Um, Ralph, how important was it for women's cricket that the um, Women's Cricket Association sort of dissolved itself at the end of the 1990s and decided to join a new body, the, the ECB, the English Cricket Board? Was that the sort of precondition for the, the modern takeoff of, of women's cricket? And have there been any regrets about it uh, in, among women cricketers afterwards? Well, I think that at the time, there was a lot of concern about what it would mean. Um, and you're right that the WCA did end up kind of democratically having a vote to dissolve itself as an organisation. So we could see it as, as um, you know, nobody forced them into it. On the other hand, by that time, they were being told by the UK Sports Council um, that if they didn't join up with the men, um, that they would have their government funding withdrawn. And so they felt really very much backed into a corner. And there was this, it's this, it was this kind of new policy in the 1990s um, from the Sports Council that men's and women's sport should be run together by the same organisation and that that would be more administratively efficient, if you like. So a lot of other women's sports were going through the process um, and cricket was, um, yeah, ended up going through this process in 1998. Um, and what happens is that women's cricket 
almost overnight goes from being run by a group of women who admittedly are kind of volunteers and um, are, you know are really struggling for resources and finances um, but they really care about women's cricket they know women's cricket and they've run it for decades so um, and then it suddenly is in the hands of a group of um, if I may say so kind of um, white middle-aged middle-class men who don't really know very much about women's cricket and perhaps don't um, you know don't prioritize women's cricket in the same way that the WCA did um, so what we've seen since the ECB took over um, is that there have been um, you know there has been a lot more resourcing of women's cricket um, and they've absolutely benefited from that and we've seen that um, the England women's team and now some domestic players are able to go professional as a result of that on the other hand, we've seen that the governance now um, has kind of trans transferred into the hands of people who perhaps aren't um, prioritising women's cricket in the same way as it always was the priori priority of the WCA. So I would see the merger very much as a mixed blessing. How interesting. What was the view of my somebody who's now become my hero, Enid, Enid Bakewell, on this subject? actually 100% know what her view was um I'm just thinking about what she might have said about it in our interview um I think by the 1990s she was um, one of the coaches of the the junior England side so she was still very much involved in women's cricket despite having retired from playing at that point or from playing international cricket at that point um so yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, a, a lot of um, former players at that point felt that um, there wasn't really any option but to kind of go along with the merger, as I say, because they were sort of backed into a corner over it. Um, so, yeah, I, I suspect that she may have had reservations about it as well, um, but kind of, you know, just felt that... It, a lot of them felt that if they didn't go ahead with the merger, then women's cricket was just going to die because they didn't have the funds to support it, um, especially if the Sports Council had withdrawn their, their financial support. Can we just move on to the other momentous uh, uh, event in, in the late 20th century, of course, which is this all-male members club, the MCC, um, has this long internal conflict, roughly about the time as the Church of England was discussing the the the, the pagan idea of women's priests, um, whether or not to let in uh, women. Your book's very interesting because Colin Ingleby Mackenzie, who is often um, open to the accusation of being an arch reactionary, was one of the foremost advocates or uh, of this move. He was. He was. He actually launched his presidency by saying, I'm, you know, I support female membership and I'm going to get women into the MCC. And he was ultimately successful in that, in that ambition. There had been this vote in 1991, whereby an overwhelming majority of MCC members had voted against admitting women to membership. And this had all been sparked off by Rachel Hayhoe Flint actually saying, um, I want to be an MCC member and I'm going to apply for membership. Um, but she was, even after that no vote, she continued to campaign for membership during the 1990s. But, but I think it was only really with um, kind of Colin Ingleby Mackenzie's support that th this um, successful vote to admit women eventually in 1998 um, was able to kind of go through he he very much he put resources into it i think there was a special brochure produced that was sent to all mcc members saying you know these are the potential benefits of of having female members 
um and and therefore um yeah it was it, it came about and the, um and they did eventually manage to get the required two-thirds majority i think they needed a two-thirds majority in order to to get women in if you're very skeptical about it you could say that really the reason um that the membership eventually came round was because um they had been denied um this new lottery funding um in order to um kind of build the new stand i don't at think Lord. that takes much skepticism with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so yeah therefore they were being denied public funding because they were seen by um they were seen by the government as kind of having this restrictive membership policy and therefore um that was the reason not to fund them so yeah it's it you know it it took a bit of um a kind of it's almost like a, a triumph of commercialism really rather than a triumph of feminism i would say but can it before we move out away from that give me your verdict on how well that's gone i mean do, does the average woman fan have the same opportunity to become a member of this still male dominated i guess organization as a man, I, I suppose we have got the same um, opportunity to apply. Um, That's sort of quite and, the question I asked. But. It's, it's, it, I think the waiting list is twenty nine years now, or something, in order to become a full member. Um, so, and I do think that there's a um, a kind of thing about network because obviously in order to apply for membership you have to get people to support your application you have to get existing members and if you're a man who's kind of in you know in that world then you're much more likely to have those contacts and you actually have to have a present or former committee member to endorse you uh, and since those are overwhelmingly those positions are overwhelmingly occupied by men to this day there is still a a degree of bias towards um, male candidates, but um, huh, one thing is equal. At least is uh, there is some sort of equality. You can now, of course, MCC now makes it possible to buy your way in. And uh, Pretty Patel has just become a member on that scheme, you know, overnight. It's a bit like becoming a, a member of the House of Lords under the modern Tory oh, party. Well, 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 under various parties, to be absolutely <laughs> fair, but it's gone. It's, it's, certainly being a treasurer of the Conservative Party is... Uh, no obstacles to becoming yeah, a member of the House of Lords. No. Uh, sorry, that's by the way. Um, it still must be easier to get in as, as a man, the MCC as a man, as a woman, and in either case, you're going to have to wait a very long time. Unless you but we have got in. the wonderful Claire Connor, who we interviewed on this podcast. Oh, yeah, first uh, president. president, which is a fantastic first female thing. president. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing to say is that the fixture list at Lords is still overwhelmingly dominated by male matches. So until we see the Middlesex women's team playing as many matches at Lords as the Middlesex men's team, then no, we don't have equality. Ralph, we, we see in the 21st century, as you were describing, the possibility of uh, women making a living by, by playing cricket, by becoming cricketers for the first time. But it, is it fair to say that the amateur ethos still has a strong influence on, on women's cricket? And there's still a lot of barriers to low-income women becoming cricketers and um, against, um, you know, minority ethnic women becoming cricketers too, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. I think um, the 
the, the kind of race and class barriers are, are tied in together, really. Um, I think one of the issues is is still that um, it's you're you're much less likely to play cricket if you're a girl at a state school than if you're a girl attending a, a private a public school, um, and so you know, and that therefore. Um, means that if you're kind of coming from an ordinary background and if you're um, a minority ethnic woman then um, you're much less likely to access cricket at that crucial time in your life um, when really you need to be getting into it if you are going to eventually go on and become a professional um, you know there are there are issues as well with um, kind of weaknesses of of the women's club game as well I think um, in England there are there are kind of pockets where um, there are really strong clubs with um, thriving women's sections um, but there are also pockets where it's very difficult to access club cricket uh, and I think that that does tend to be um, you know that that does tend to, there tends to be a kind of um, urban rural divide there which um, adds to these kind of class and and race issues. I think that to some extent women's cricket is is often given a free ride when we're talking about um, the the racism that's really kind of endemic and, and structural to English cricket. We often think of that as being a problem with the men's game, but I think it's equally a problem with the women's game. There's a there's a cultural barrier. Um, because you know the game has traditionally and, and remains, as we're seeing with the with the Yorkshire situation at the moment, remains kind of hostile um, to to non-white players, um, and that's um, you know it's doubly difficult for women because often they they feel that they're excluded on grounds of both their race and their gender um, from this sport. Kind of traditionally, they certainly have been. Um, and if you look at somebody like Ebony Rainford Brent, who who really movingly last year um, during the Black Lives Matter protests gave that interview on Sky where she talked about her own experiences as kind of having come into the game in the 90s and the and the noughties um, and having really, really struggled with um, you know racist comments aimed at her. And so I, I think that all of these things, are, you know, it, it's still difficult Um if you are a, a black girl or a black woman trying to access cricket, I think that's that's really difficult. Um, it's brilliant to see Ebony's um, ACE programme um, kind of taking root and, and having success um, in Surrey and in other in other places now as well. Um, and that is concentrating on girls just as much as it is boys. So I think that's really brilliant to see. So hopefully we're going to see some changes. But yeah, there are there are still barriers in place, I think. But there are also um, terrific. Uh, grounds for hope I mean it was far too late but Claire Taylor being made the first um, woman cricket first cricketer of the year in for in Winston for in 2009 wasn't it um, and and the whole sort of change in the coverage there it shows a much greater respect and appreciation and in uh, of, of women's cricket as a as something as, as a really powerful thing yeah, absolutely the coverage now is is unrecognizable um, from where it was you know 10 or even five years ago um and the even fact that, five years ago yeah. is fascinating it's been very recent hasn't it you know that change yeah the fact that we're seeing um you know eighty six thousand people at the mcg in 2020 for the that final between australia and india or a sellout crowd here in england at, at lords for the 2017 world cup final i think that's brilliant and and i think that that has come about as a result of increased investment really because when you get women able to play and train as professionals then the standard goes up and people are more are more likely to kind of engage with the sport so so it's it, it's almost a shame that the women's game couldn't have gone professional 50 years ago because we'd be much further on than we are but anyway 
um, we're here and, and it's exciting to see it happen now. A lot of that, I think, came as a result of the massive flood of money into the international game through these, uh, through these huge TV contracts, which were first negotiated or arranged, but really by Asan Mani at the ICC, uh, which then he rather superbly spread around, um, not just sort of smaller countries, but also to the women's game around the world and forced governing bodies to plough money into women's cricket. It's not really that there are reasons beyond and above um, the kind of the fight against reaction at at Lords and the MCC. Actually, it's a global phenomenon. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And there are professional women's teams now in um, in a lot of countries around the world. It's been, again, it's been a relatively recent phenomenon. So England were the first to have a professional um, international side in, in 2014, but other countries have kind of followed suit. And, and that's really exciting. Yeah, it's brilliant. As you know, Richard and I in uh, Lahore a few years ago, we met the... Uh coach the women's coach of the Iranian women's cricket team that's something isn't it you know the, the world really is changing wow um Ralph we often we quite a few mostly male um commentators have suggested to us that t20 was a big lift for for women's cricket do you think that's that's true or is this slightly reflect a um you know, a lingering patronising attitude. Well, T20 is all right because it's only 20 overs and it's an ideal form of the game for for women to play because they're not as strong as men. They don't cope with um, longer forms as as well as men do. That's, a, that's an interesting way of, of framing it. Um, I certainly think that T20 cricket has been really important in the growth of the women's game. Um, one of the reasons has been um, the, the institution of doubleheaders um, so, for example, if you look at the 2009 um, T20 World Cup that was played in England, um, they had the men's and the women's tournaments going on at the same time. Um, and a lot of men um, or male journalists, I should say, um, actually therefore watched and followed some of the women's matches, whereas they wouldn't have otherwise because they were happening on the same day. Um, and so there's this amazing moment um, in 2009, there's a, a semi-final between England and Australian women's teams at the Oval. Um, and it's a really it's a really big moment and um, England come out and, and Claire Taylor kind of leads this incredible run chase and a lot of the journalists now um, kind of working in um, normally working predominantly in the men's game um, actually look back at that and cite that match as being the moment when they first realised that women's cricket was something that they were going to take seriously um, and was, was actually a very skilled game so without those double headers those kind of moments perhaps might not have happened. The other, re- the other way in which T20 is influential or has been influential for women's cricket is these franchise leagues that, um, that we have now around the world. So the Women's Big Bash League, um, we've had the Kia Super League in England and now the 100, um, which is obviously a bit controversial. But um, these, these kind of opportunities are important for women because generally they get more exposure um, and you know it's a chance to make a bit more money as well. Um, so th- those kind of um, things have been really exciting for the women's game. What concerns me about this focus on T20 cricket is that um, it's it's kind of gone alongside a decline in, in women's test cricket. Um, and so, you know, for all of the, the history in which um, the English women's game was run by the Women's Cricket Association, the WCA were always pushing women's test cricket and they were running multi-test series. 
and now kind of well really since the ICC took over the running of of women's cricket in 2005 you just don't really see that anymore and you only really see um very occasional test matches between England and Australia and India women have played a couple in the last 12 months but that's been very rare um and countries like New Zealand haven't played a women's test since um 2004 I think it was was the last one so that and that's worrying because I think generally speaking everyone sees test cricket as being the premier format of the game um, and if we therefore say, OK, well, women aren't going to play that, then it, it suggests that people aren't taking women's cricket seriously or it's going it, to, you know, it's it has a kind of ideological impact because people think, oh, women aren't capable of playing tests. Um, and um, we don't we're not going to care about women's cricket as much because they don't play what we see as the premier format. So I think that um, T20 has been great for women's cricket, but that shouldn't have come at the expense of test cricket. Of course, the same forces are very much at play in the uh, men's game as well. Can I ask you one specific question, which I was very... I, I was learning the other day how close Sarah Taylor, who's such a brilliant wicketkeeper, came actually to playing uh, for Sussex when she sort of was taking part in the coaching sessions there. And I wish she had, and I can't see why she she didn't really do you think maybe we ever will have a woman's player in uh in the first class male male matches or do you think we should something we should want again it may be controversial but i don't think it is something we should want and i don't really think it's something that we should be focusing on or almost with with the sarah taylor case people kind of obsessed over it actually when somebody is um you know basically the best player in the world in international women's cricket it, does it really matter whether or not she plays for the Sussex second mm. 11 um, in, in men's cricket? And why do we think that that's more exciting than actually her kind of world-class exploits behind the stumps in international women's cricket? Um, so it's just not something that I can get particularly excited about. And I also think that there's there would be a real risk that if we did try and pursue um, mixed first-class cricket, that the best women would filter off into the men's game. And that leaves... Um, your women's only structures totally impoverished if Sarah mm. Taylor had gone and played for um, you know and had gone and only played men's cricket then we wouldn't have seen her playing in the women's game and that would have been a real loss so so for me actually um, that th what what needs to happen is that we need to start valuing women's cricket on the same terms as men's cricket um, and we need to start um, kind of giving it equal coverage um, and thinking about it on equal terms and um, rather than thinking oh well let's try and get some women playing in the men's game that's my view and the next other thing I'd love you to do we've got the women's we've got the women's world cup next year yeah. tell us who who the favorites are Give us a and tip. yes lining up well, England are defending champions, having won uh, memorably in England at, at Lords in 2017. Um, but I think you can't really look past Australia. Um, you know, they they just are the best team in the world in all formats at the moment um, because they're the best resource. They've got a fully professional domestic setup, and we don't have that anywhere else in the world. So for me, um, I think if you were if you wanted to um, put money on it, then I'd be putting it on Australia. Give us an outside. How has Pakistan, Richard and I have written a, a great deal about Pakistan women's cricket and it's such an interesting story. How have they been coming on and have they got a chance? I don't, I wouldn't have thought that they would have a chance of winning. Um, 
it's it's been difficult for them, I think. Um, with the with the pandemic, um, there was a gap where they didn't play very much international cricket, uh, and and it's obviously been a blow to them recently because um, the England women's team were meant to be touring there, um, and that got cancelled. Um, and I think that that would have been um, you know, potentially a real kind of fillip for Pakistan women's cricket to have the England women's team touring there. And a fillip, yeah, I should so say, for England's that... cricket too to go to Pakistan. Yes, it's a wonderful country to play cricket in. Um, for yep, all genders. We better not start this one again. We'll have another. We'll, we'll be we'll be here for another hour. Yes. Um, Ralph, it's been wonderful having you for a, a second innings. It's been very rich, uh, rewarding conversation. A lot of optimism about women's cricket. I feel at the moment, and um, hope it continues to flourish. Thank you for being with us. Gosh, that was an interesting. I learnt so much talking to you, Ralph. Your book's wonderful. Absolutely authoritative and glorious. Thank you so much for writing it and being with us today. Thanks for having me. And Rupert Spy from Peter Oborn. The sun's out. The leaves are drifting down from the trees. Uh, the, I can see the crows milling around at the bottom of the garden. Gosh, it's a lovely day. Huh. Well, it's goodbye for me, Richard Heller. The leaves are drifting down from the trees here, but that's only because there's a damn great wind. Um, uh, blowing them off the trees and the crows are more like vultures around my residence but uh, it's goodbye for me anyway <laughs>